So hi and welcome back. I'm Nick Monfort and um, I'm the Associate Professor of Digital Media here at MIT in Comparative Media Studies and Writing and glad to welcome you to our first plenary discussion here. Um, I'm going to introduce the speakers briefly. Um, as, uh, as David said, we um, invite people who are presenting at other parts of the conference here uh, to come together in this conversation and we're really pleased to have uh, Fiona Atwood, Professor of Media at Middlesex University in the UK and editor of Mainstreaming Sex and Porn.com and co-editor of the book Controversial Images. Um, her current book project is Media, Sex, and Technology. Uh, David Rosen is here with us as well, who writes the Media Current blog for Filmmaker Magazine and is the author of Sex Scandals America, Politics, and the Ritual of Public Shaming. And next to me, uh, we're pleased to have Jonathan Zittrain, Professor of Law and Computer Science at Harvard, who's co-founder of the Berkman Center for Internet and Society. And his books include The Future of the Internet and How to Stop It. Um, so our topic is, you know, seemingly quite different from um, the way that, um, uh, that uh, David Thorburn um, framed this conference in terms of the Boston Marathon bombings and uh, um, governmental and other types of uh, surveillance. Um, there may be a relationship, and I hope we'll get to that in our discussion, but uh, one of the aspects of, uh, of privacy that has been remarkable is that thanks to uh, the increased facility for personal communication on the internet, uh, people are often providing too much information about themselves in a lot of people's views. Uh, phrases like uh, no filter and oversharing, the title of this conference, uh, of this uh, conference session here, um, relate to the way that uh, people are voluntarily divulging information online in ways often that make other people uncomfortable. And I want to let our, uh, uh, our speakers here um, address this topic uh, from the standpoint of their expertise, but I wanted to start off by bringing up two examples which uh, may be amusing and or interesting and may come into the conversation. Um, and that I think relate to this phenomenon in interesting ways. So a lot of the questions that, uh, that um, uh, come up around this uh, relate to youth, relate to uh, issues of uh, sexting, sharing about relationships and sexual topics. Um, but I, I found an interesting example of um, oversharing that uh, arose early in 2010, uh, which Yahoo Tech wrote about on the web. Uh, they, uh, uh, they write, ever had the hankering to inform the planet that you just bought a $5 footlong at Subway or spent $54.33 at Victoria's Secret. Well, oversharers of the world, rejoice. Thanks to a just-launched Twitter-like service called Blippi, you can now post all your credit and debit card purchases to the web for all to see. So I think it's interesting. I think Yahoo Tech probably has some type of filter that they just run on press releases to add sarcasm uh, in order to produce these articles. If they don't, they should contact me. Um, but um, <clears throat> they, there's also a, a tendency here to see this, that somehow there must be something naughty, inappropriate, or sexualized about this. And um, it's, it's hard for me to imagine typically you know, credit and debit card transactions in that way. But you know, we have to bring in Victoria's Secret. And perhaps the underlying question of a service like this, which, which was shut down on, uh, uh, in May 2011, um, is, simply, uh, is simply why. Uh, why, why? Why are there people willing to set up something like this? Why are people willing to, to share in this way? Um, we almost wish that it could be sort of more titillating and inappropriate so we'd have a reason as to why people would be doing it, but we don't understand sometimes. 
And then another uh, comment on oversharing from a study that uh, Intel commissioned um, that was uh, uh, completed and, and discussed in September 2012. So Jessica Hansen, who's an Intel spokesperson, had there's, there's various results which are intriguing and various uh, ways of looking across cultures in the study. But uh, I liked particularly this one quip that uh, this uh, Intel spokesperson uh, mentioned. She said, uh, we feel like others are sharing too much information, that there's too much to consume. But when we self-reflect, of course, it's not us. We're not the ones who are oversharing. Um, and so it does seem to be, this is, a, a, again, another difference from um, issues of, uh, of surveillance or issues of, of consumer behavior and um, uh, private and public boundaries is that we often put this off on, on others. Uh, and we don't consider that, uh, that we might be part of this uh, system somehow of, of oversharing. Wherever we want to draw the line, um, we ourselves are, uh, are safe and we have critical things to say about other people. So those are just some initial ideas um, uh, about this, uh, this topic. And I want to invite uh, the speakers to address it from each of their perspectives. Um, uh, and to say something about what some of the remarkable aspects of the sort of oversharing uh, that takes place online um, are uh, from the standpoints of their research and thinking. So let me start and ask uh, uh, David Rosen if you'd like to yeah, present. I, uh, I don't know if I could, how I access, do I go up there? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great, cool. Mm -hmm. So what I, I found the question problematic. And so what I wanted to do is to sort of reframe it a bit and perhaps in the act of simplifying it, make it bigger, which is, of course, how confusions and learning happens. But it was really an attempt to sort of, oh, got to just get this going here. Okay, so we don't need that. I just want to go up here to the top. And get up here. So here we go. So the question that, oh, please, if you would. I, I simplified the question that was presented to, to us in one sentence, which was raised here, and it's a question that I really couldn't, um, I don't know if kids are uh, oversharing. The term that one of my daughters uses, who works with a lot of young people, is digital Teflon, because they don't actually experience it as oversharing, except they know that it'll happen, but it's somehow invisible to them. And so what I try to take as a different approach in our discussion, hopefully this will give some form to our conversation, which is what do we mean by privacy, especially for young people today? And what do we mean about selfhood or really self-empowerment that the media facilitates in a 21st century world? So the things that I'm gonna talk about here are pretty obvious and I'm not gonna spend a lot of time. They're ways to help us sort of understand two things that's going on. One is this conference is really about the digital world. And you, this is all sort of familiar, right? Nobody, but the other side of it is the actual real world in which this plays a part. And I think that there's a tendency we always get to forget that there is a real world. And I'm gonna focus specifically on the classroom as a real world because it's, a, it's the most sort of incubator, if you will, pressure cooker experience for most of these kids because their, their whole self is coming into identity and being formalized. Their libido is surging through their body and. and and there's my phone telling me I should shut up. So, um, but so what we have here, and we live under, if you, know, if you do the work, there are a, a expulsions happening for classroom discipline and the crisis in the classroom is widespread. I mean, from wherever, you can read it every day in newspapers. 
This is a parallel universe that I don't think we should forget when we consider the larger context of what's going on and how kids are using technology and for what ends. And finally, as I was told, I only had five minutes, is really to look at it as a form of technology as a form of empowerment. It's one of the tools where perhaps in other days it was, you know, whether you could sing in a singing group or play baseball or whatever, the technology gives kids, oftentimes kids who have very low self-esteem, enormous power. I was reminded of this, you know, in a story I heard from one of my relatives where she was, you know, like 12 or 13 years old, and she was saying that all these guys are texting her and e-messaging her all the time, and she sees these, and we talked about the fact that they wouldn't have the courage to either stop her in school or at home or call her. So in a sense, the, the, the immediacy that we attribute to technology in one sense, digital media, in a sense is a mediating institution that essentially both empowers and removes power at the same time. And my only last, as, last thing, again, getting back to this notion of digital Teflon, is I haven't seen the study, and again, I don't, I'm not an academic, and so I really don't do the scholarship. Hopefully some people could share it with me of how, how this really seeps into kids' lives. Because from my understanding, there's a kind of, a, it, it has no kind of, it's not there. It's so what? It's this quality that it's not real. It's real, but it's not real. And I, and I really, that's this piece of the puzzle I'm struggling to understand better. So that's my way of hopefully framing this discussion. Thank you. Okay. Thanks very much. Thanks, David. Fiona, would you like to follow up with some comments from your perspective on this uh, general issue of oversharing as related to okay, youth culture or otherwise? Yeah, okay. Um, I think there's a, there's a tendency, not in research, but I think there's a tendency in public debates about this sort of topic to see the divide as very much between the way people talk offline and the way people talk online. And I mean, I think we know that that's not true, you know, that, but I think, I think sort of taking a, a longer view of, of just the sheer difficulty of how people translate all the different ways that they might talk and communicate with other people, translate that through technology, we, we shouldn't really underestimate that. So, you know, the, the, the range of um, things that a person might want to say and the range of audiences that they might communicate with in any place or time then have to be filtered through technology. And of course, it, it, it doesn't necessarily work terribly well. It doesn't carry tone of voice terribly well. It reaches people it shouldn't reach. And I think that's just, you know, it's a, the historical moment is we're trying to get our heads around how to do that. So it's not, it's not this black and white question of offline, online. It's kind of how to, who does people think they're talking to at any one moment? And, you know, in a, in a moment where to, to say something, to make a comment, is suddenly broadcast. Conversation has become a, a form of broadcast. Um, I think, particularly in terms of young people, um, because the, the whole question of privacy and public is often played out through talk around different generations. They do things differently from older people, or, you know, that it's, it's that kind of thing. I think, I think there is a... I think, it's a broader issue for all of us, but young people have a particular sort of weight of expectation on them to be able to cope with these things brilliantly, which I think is often quite unfair. Why should they be able to get these things perfectly right? I think the other thing that um, 
we, we also need to pay more attention to is just the sheer level of surveillance that young people are under. And they're, they're trying to get these very difficult um, skills of how to communicate and how to get that level of sharing right, but under enormous pressure often from adults, parents, teachers, um, a huge spotlight on them, which probably, I mean, people of my age didn't have to go through that. And I think that's really, really hard. So, yeah, so that would be kind of my thing that I think we need to pay much more attention to kind of the historical factors that surround these problems and kind of perhaps a, a bit more of a sympathetic approach to people's difficulties with oversharing or undersharing or not getting sharing right. Well, thanks. Uh, so, Jonathan, would you like to start off with some comments, uh, opening uh, the discussion from your perspective on, uh, on oversharing and uh, these sorts of um, TMI issues? Uh, sure. Um, I would love that. So, in some ways, I see this as a little bit of a question of push versus pull. That's a dichotomy that I think came into vogue around 1996 in thinking about the internet that was like, would you rather be emailed or would you rather visit the website? I remember the Wired magazine cover with the hand on it. Yes, because it's all about push because Wired is coming to you, you are not going to Wired. In Soviet Union, push. So it's interesting because uh, Unless I've just exactly mixed up push and pull, have I? <laughs> have I gotten it somewhere a million editors of Wired are screaming out as well, start with it's one right. and then are still. It's like literally and writerly. Yeah, <laughs> right. We've forgotten by now. We just Which is also why I have trouble leaving and entering buildings following instruction <laughs> in the door. Like, wait, are they supposed to pull on the other side? I'd like none of this to be counted against my five and a half minutes. <laughs> okay. So, pull versus push. <laughs> the real issue is from the title and the question asked, which is a reasonable and common question when you first look at it, which is, kids today, what are you going to do? And aren't they sharing too much? And when they grow up, they'll realize how foolish they were, but it's too late to clear their permanent record. And I think on second glance, it may not be the right question, because... I know we're always living at a point of inflection. That's, that's the nature of an exponential curve. Every point of an exponential curve is a point of inflection. But we're really living at a point of inflection right now because we're seeing the mainstreaming, uh, which the lead candidate is Google Glass, of cheap processors, cheap networks, and now cheap sensors have made it that we can be pretty much streaming what we're doing all the time if we choose. And I use we to say it only takes one in a group of, say, this room to be having it that we are all streaming. There's somebody holding up an iPad awkwardly here being like, I'm going to record all this. And that means we are recording all of this. And in that environment, it's kind of like, boy, how long 2006, 2007 seems to be ago when it was Google Street View causing an uproar in Germany that, like, a truck was driving down every street in Germany once and taking a photo once. 
And he's like, OMG, what if at that moment I'm dropping my trousers in my front yard? Like, what are the odds? I don't know. It's Germany. It could be high. And what are we going to do about it? And like, how quaint that already seems, such that now I think, if you just follow the dotted line to where it's going, it's that unless you are in your Faraday-caged fortress of solitude, and choosing not to transmit in, I guess, a push kind of way, or pull, I still don't know which is which, um, you are safe, but as soon as you leave that environment, chances are increasingly converging to one out of one that you are being recorded. And at that point, asking about oversharing by the person doing it is not asking about a technological choice by that person to press record or transmit. It's just about a choice by that person to emote. The, the uh, admonition to the person is, don't you know everything is now a press conference? Should you choose to do anything interesting defined as unusual, you should expect that it's going to be somewhere. And the kind of like knowing, nodding bromide of, uh, well, don't say anything online that you wouldn't want to appear on the front page of the New York Times. Like, that's good advice for people who care about how they're portrayed in the New York Times. But for everyone else, that's a bromide that says, never do anything that will make you get noticed, which is like, welcome to the new world. It's a labor camp and the guards are brutal. So that's not where I want to be. I mean that only metaphorically speaking. I mean no disrespect to people, in fact, in labor camps where the guards are, in fact, brutal. So um, it also leads to what I think of Douglas Hofstadter coined this years ago, the principle of reverberating doubt. And it basically says that uh, it was a game theoretic thing he was toying with. It's like if we gave just the people at this table a button and in 10 seconds you'd either press it or you wouldn't. And if nobody presses the button... Everybody gets $1,000, but if somebody presses the button more than uh, one or more, then everybody gets $100 who pressed the button and people who didn't get nothing. Okay, this is not supposed to be a dilemma. It's like, let's just not press the button. We all get $1,000. Everybody wins. If we make it to be this entire room, I start to get a little iffy about the back row there and I'm going to press the button to preserve my $100 for sure. And so long as it is revealed after the 10 seconds that more than one person pressed the button, everybody who pressed the button can say, see, I was right. I was right. I wasn't the problem. I was responding to it. And before you know it, on repeated iteration, we're all just sitting here earning only 100 instead of the 1,000. If, come on, people, let's just not press the button. That is to say, an environment in which anybody can speak on the rest of us as to whether this will be recorded it starts to make sense that all of us can be indifferent about recording it ourselves because we're not the ones oversharing. It's the other people doing it, and we might as well have it from our own point of view. So this kind of, uh, I wouldn't say blame the victim. That's way too incendiary. But this, this notion of looking at it as how do we educate our kids to keep their heads a little bit closer pointed to the ground and not to be so unusual, this is why now you can see I'm arguing it's not really the right point of intervention, both because of freedom for the kids and because I don't think it's, it's going to work. It's, it's the uh, Chuck Perot from years ago. He wrote this wonderful book called Normal Accidents, which explains how things that are very predictable, once they start interacting, lead to unpredictable results. So there might be icebergs ahead thanks to interlocking complex technologies that we don't see. 
hello, it's called the internet. Like that's a great example of giving us both good and bad unexpected things. And there are market failures, uh, for which I think the principle of reverberating doubt might be an example of that once we are experiencing it, where we see the iceberg ahead, and we're just like, God, somebody really ought to do something about that iceberg. But structurally, it's not, for whatever reason, my role in the system to avoid it. Um, So what do we do to solve this problem? Where should we be focusing? And I think a lot of people in this room already study this kind of thing. It's how to do technological interventions so that the emerging complex system, which is going to give rise to normal accidents, is one that avoids the largest icebergs. And we iteratively develop it, ideally, to avoid that which seems to be close enough ahead out of the fog that we can see it. And what might that mean? So it might mean, for example, realizing that less and less choosing to share something is a choice made at the moment of sharing, but rather a set-and-forget-it default. On Internet terms, that has meant more and more it's our mouse droppings. It's our telemetry as we surf that is defining us rather than an explicit moment where we click share and later regret it. There's a number of people checked in in this building on Foursquare. There will be, mark my words, a future version of Foursquare where you just automatically check in at the places where you're vying for a mayorship once you are within proximity. Why should you have to check in each time? Just be checked in. Let somebody else punch your clock for you when you come to work. And that would become the telemetry that we will then worry about oversharing, but for which only when you choose to opt into the entire system, I'd like to be a Foursquare user, are you oversharing rather than doing it at each moment. The other thing is, as we are talking about synchronous sharing of stuff, it would be great to start building into the technology ideas that arise from wanting to be able to watch or converse with the watchers. So, for example... Uh, somebody famously wore a T-shirt that says, like, I do not consent to my photograph being taken. And then people take a picture of him and share it. Um, that uh, is a very analog system of trying to express one's desires, if not rights. Uh, but you can see technologies that respect it. So I'm walking around badged in some way that is saying, I'd prefer this to be off the record, kind of the way that in GTalk you can say, like, take this off the record. And what it means is not impose some huge DRM that a person on the other end of the IM couldn't possibly take a screen snapshot or copy and paste. It just means don't automatically record it in my archive Gmail forever as just another object in my Gmail. You can see in the analog world, now meaning digital, doing that as well, expressing preference. And if I'm using a recording device, it might say, NB, 15 people within the proximity of this device are asking not to be recorded. Would you like to ping them and ask for clarification or tell them you're doing it anyway and just put them on notice? Could you imagine recording in a way that does put people proximately near you on notice that you are recording? It's not saying exactly what the allocation of rights and affordances should be, but it does say we should be made more aware of the matrix of surveillance around us that is coming from people like us making choices and have a chance to let the technology facilitate our negotiating of that. And that's why when I think of the title of this session, The End of Privacy, I don't think of it as, is privacy gone, which is, I think, the intention of the title, but rather, what is the end, the telos of privacy? What are we trying to accomplish with that, and how can we make it, for example, that we avoid the iceberg of everything has to be like a press conference, even when kids are throwing spitballs at each other in the lunchroom, because of the permanence and um, uh, uh, spreadability of that 
How can we devise technologies that will let people negotiate what they're doing? That seems to me uh, to be the right focus. Thank you. Well, Jonathan, thanks very much. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, one of the questions I was hoping to head toward was uh, uh, this one on whether the issue of uh, this uh, uh, voluntary oversharing can be separated from surveillance data capture by corporations and other entities. So, um, so we've answered that. We've gone through all the questions now. Uh, <laughs> the answer is no. <laughs> it, it seems to have a connection to whether it's a classroom type of setting in which we expect uh, uh, nowadays uh, zero tolerance and we expect a type of uh, uh, surveillance and control um, or a Google Glasses type of uh, reporting scenario where we don't have uh, the volition ourselves to um, uh, decide whether or not something will be shared. Uh, this, this, uh, th there seems to be a connection and reflection of these other sorts of issues of, you know, that, that are involved. Um, um, it, I mean, it does seem to me, though, I, I, I'm thinking that there, there are cases, like, for instance, I mean, credit card transactions obviously can be, uh, can be shared by people if... Uh, um, your account is compromised, and if the and and in a sense they're they're shared by the entities you know best place to take advantage of them at your expense already. Um, but uh, but you know the choice of whether or not to to say everything that you've purchased you know or to to record other sorts of details. It, it in certain cases maybe they're old fashioned sort of blogging and and Twitter types of types of scenarios. But it seems like they they occur in some cases. I think you know the problem with automatically checking into locations at MIT is that you need better uh, wireless and phone network coverage, actually, to do that. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> but, um, and um, <clears throat> um, maybe, that, maybe that's coming, probably long after Google Glass. <laughs> but but I, wonder about, I, I wonder about, you know, what people are doing. In, it seems that there's some volition that people have, uh, and it's not, I, mean, I don't want to single out youth, but, but uh, uh, people who are using online media technologies to share information about themselves. And some of these in quotidian ways, like you know, the everyday carry, like here's what's in my pockets, you know, things like this. I mean, these are not, uh, you know, titillating or embarrassing particular things, but nevertheless, there are ways in which people, that, you know, which some people find quite unusual and odd, but other people find, you know, somehow socially interesting and in ways of ways of connecting. Um, so I'm wondering if if people, you know, to what extent this is rehearsal for the Panopticon. You know that we, we, we have to we're, we're heading toward a situation in which um, uh, we we have very little volition. Uh, it's the case more with youth than with other segments of society because of control of the classroom and because of other situations. Or um, or if there's um, I mean, what are there some positive aspects of of people um, choosing to share in these ways that uh, that don't relate to surveillance <coughs> and data capture directly? Yeah, that's my answer. Um, no, but the truth, but two weeks ago, uh, in New I come from New York, and uh, I've worked in the independent film world. I used to work at Sundance, and I worked with uh, the Tribeca Film Festival. And two weeks ago, there was what's called Tribeca Interactive. And this was a program that was really, it's all day session like this, but focused on what people are doing with new media in terms of creating what's called uh, sort of multimedia storytelling. And part of the groups who were represented were efforts to reach young people, to let them tell new kinds of stories using these very same technologies, but anchored both in audio radio, but also, and then putting the radio on the web and making interactions between themselves as creators uh, or video makers 
for, for television, streaming or, or broadcast, and then anchoring that into real ongoing so you can interact through social networking uh, programs or you could participate directly through the internet. And so it was all of a sudden, these kids were, st were sh and this, and I'm just, there was a whole lot of wonderful stuff going on. I got to tell you, it's just exciting. But one of the interesting pieces of it was this whole thing that was taking place in Minneapolis. And it was really about why, what was it called? Uh, Zedned Ed, um, which was the end of education. They, why go to school? Why waste your time if you're a teenager going to school? And so it was a whole series, and I apologize if I got the name wrong, but I can tell you when I get it. It was just great because these kids were really struggling with what does it all mean? Why am I doing this stuff? And they wanted feedback both from their quote-unquote limited universe of friends, but also the wider world of quote-unquote friends that they could actually invoke through online media. And it was exciting because both for the filmmakers who were sort of you know older, uh, but working with these kids to help them learn how to use and combine these technologies in new ways. And so to answer your question, there was, there was no issue of end to privacy. Because to them, they weren't crossing that line of what, if you want to talk about privacy in the context we've done it, putting aside financial and other issues, the question becomes secrets. You know, am I, and there were some interesting programs about young people, both of color and of gay uh, sexual orientation issues, especially transsexuals. So, but it was really about how do I make a full self embracing these technologies to, get, to make myself open to receive information and suggestions in an active way with other people. And I, you know, I thought it was, it was just great. So that, that was just one example of stuff that's going on about experimentation from the ground up, if you will, with media. So that's my one example. Yeah. Don't it? It's your, whatever, I don't need to put um, you on the spot. Yeah. Um, but I think even just in a very sort of ordinary way, um, I don't know, it's almost like we, why, why do we start from a position of thinking that every communication or every exchange has to be really meaningful, like you really need to say that? I mean, people, you know, just want to wink and nod or emote or, or say what's in their pockets. <laughs> I don't see why that should be a problem. Oh, yeah, I think it's there's the a lot. Of, of, I mean, the sort of the idea of phatic communication, that when you're walking by someone in the hall, you say hello, yeah. you're not exchanging semantic value there. Somehow you're just saying, you're acknowledging, oh, you're also a member of my society. Yes. But it, it is true that you don't take out what you have in your pockets and show it to them. <laughs> I mean, there's, because it seems like there's, there's often very elaborate ways of doing things which, um, which aren't really understandable to, to, to everyone who, who uses online systems and everyone who communicates that way. And I guess one of the things I wonder about is whether, you know, on one, on, on one hand, you could say, these, you know, people are doing things, it doesn't make any sense. Or on another hand, you might say, well, some of it doesn't make sense, but they're experimenting and they're trying out new ways of connecting socially, and in some cases sharing meaningful information, in some cases not. Yeah. Um, and uh, from that perspective, it might be that you could say, well, should... You know, should we let those overshare, or should we should, should we let this rising generation, you know, work this issue out, or you know, do do the people who are sort of standing standing apart from this and criticizing this behavior, you know, should they also be engaging in new social practices online and uh, trying to understand how to relate to other people in new ways? I, th I think yes, I think I think it's easy to stand on the sidelines and criticize, but I think I think there are, um, and I take your point about um, some of those things. Do seem unusual, but I think there are more more continuities with 
other ways that people communicate where you know a lot of what we say to each other is really quite superfluous you might take, tell a really long story about how you how i got here and i got off at this stop and then i did and you don't need to know it's not a huge community you know gift to the world but we we talk in all sorts of ways already without using technologies in ways that are you know they're not great contributions of meaning i think we sometimes forget that and and think that um we're comparing it to something where people have communicated in an entirely different way i'm not sure they have so maybe it's part part of it is this, this valorization of online communication that this should be meaningful it should be semantic uh we're not thinking really about the social aspects of it but we're expecting that you know someone has posted something to their blog for a reason and that that is you know valuable and it's it's uh bookmarked so that you can go back and, and look yes. at it for uh, extracting value out of it. Yeah. In, in and clearly we've moved beyond that. You know, as yeah. Jonathan was saying, we're not at that point anymore where all of these things have this massive significance because yeah. it's becoming so ubiquitous that they can't, they, they're not all records of note. Well, I wanted to ask, if you know, I wanted to ask you about something actually related to a comment of Jonathan's, this idea that, you know, um, Every point is an inflection point that we're at right now, and, and that we're, we're in a, we're in a situation of um, uh, continually uh, increasing media change. Digital media is not uh, it's not stabilizing. It's it's a different situation than with other media technologies or with face to face communication or other um, uh, other ways in which people communicate, which which you know sort of get worked out maybe and state and stabilize over time. And so, because one idea, one idea people might have about online communication, um, uh, again, to, to for a moment draw a false distinction between online communication and offline communication, but they might say, well, we're still figuring out what, what's going on there. We're understanding social conventions. There's flame wars and so forth, you know, are coming up because we, we haven't managed to deal with communication online quite yet, but, you know, but we'll get there. But the idea of there being uh, always an inflection point and um, uh, uh, exponential change in the systems that we're using and uh, the web replacing Usenet and that being replaced by social media sites and those and early social media sites being replaced by recent social media sites and so on could mean that we never, um, we never have enough stability to develop these social conventions. We're always experimenting. Um, I don't know if that's, so I guess my question would be, you know, uh, do you buy that? Does it matter in terms of how we, how we should be uh, thinking about the world online um, and how online communication fits in in the broader context of all of the communication in our lives. Oh, I don't know the answer to that. I, I think we, we always will be experimenting. Yeah. I think that can't stop, can it? You dropped a catnippy word a while ago, um, uh, panopticon. Yes. Um, <laughs> any panopticon fans out there? <laughs> it's like I don't think you're really allowed to be a fan of the panopticon. I think the guy in the tower up there, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I see Bodo Balaz. It's like, yeah. Let's keep an eye on that. I think it's going somewhere. Um, but I, I want to unpack it a little and do it by again trying to draw a dotted line off what trajectory we can see as to what kind of world we're going in. And by drawing a dotted line, I don't think it means. We're being determinists about it, but we are acknowledging that there are forces and they have a physics to them and it may not be immutable, and, but, but the more you understand it, the more you can pull a lever if you think it should be going in another direction. And for that, I think a little bit about the quantified self movement. In this crowd, how many like quantified selfies do we have here? 
Really? That few? Or you're just wanting not to share too much? Did you count them, or are you just looking no, at I, I just saw People were raising their hands like this. <laughs> they were doing, like, T-Rex hands. And um, I think that's a great example of probably just descriptively too much information so far to oneself, uh, although there can be very positive aspects to knowing that which we have long since lost the ability to be in tune with more naturally. Um, and... That telemetry that you gather for yourself, that may or may not be TMI for oneself, there will be incentives to want to be sharing that out. If it turns out it could be profitable for someone to get that telemetry, they'll offer to share the wealth with you, and consumers famously will do so for like a penny off the price of a loaf of bread. So to me, that's again, it's like if you can see the buyer and the seller and the surplus, there's going to be a market unless something very unusual is happening. So all of this is to say, you add up things like the quantified self-movement and the recording of stuff that seems weird at first, but then just becomes normal. I remember signing up for 23andMe and thinking, like, boy, I'll bet they've got, like, the privacy policy Mothra. Like, you're going to look at that, and it's going to be like you're going to pick a pseudonym, and there's going to be, like, a guard with a box that maps the pseudonym to your name. And that was not in the privacy policy. And it turns out, in retrospect, it didn't need to be. And now I'm like, I'm on 23andMe. You're on 23 Let's friend each other on 23andMe and see if our genetic profiles match. Like, in 2013, that is not a crazy thing to say when it would have been in 2006, 2007. So I add up things that are kind of quantified selfie, and you'll realize then, this gets back to your, like, well, what's in my pockets? Why could it be bad for people to know whether push or pull, what's in your pockets? One reason is because of very expected, tightly coupled judgments that would be made about what's in somebody's pockets or uh, what they're doing. And particularly, I know there's some uh, aspect about kids here, there's an element where if Bart Simpson is taking a slingshot to school, it would be good to know he's got a slingshot so you can remonstrate with him before he even uses it. That gets us to the panopticon problem of if we want people to actually internalize norms and be reflective about them and then own them uh, to be kind of self-changing, if not self-defining, you can't be watching them all the time and Skinner boxing them to do the right thing or they'll only learn that it's the camera that's keeping them well-behaved. In the coming bad years, when the cameras break, that will lead to bad things. Spoiler alert on Lord of the Flies. It doesn't end very well. Um, But it also means that you get people that don't ethically own what they do. They only calculate the costs and benefits of doing it and and calculate in the fact that it'll be noticed. So that's one problem to be thinking about as to why people might want privacy, even if they don't realize they want it, and uh, a leg in for a possibly paternalistic Uh, kind of intervention. The other thing is unexpected uh, inferences made about what's in your pockets or what you're doing. And I mean, I remember when people were using Fitbits, uh, very early quantified self stuff. I guess it's not the past yet, so people are still using Fitbits for all I know. And now you can friend each other and share your activity and enter into a contest with somebody to see who can walk farther. And then there was, I guess, a moment where, like, Fitbits, especially because you could wear them to track your sleep, were basically tracking your sexual activity, too. And everybody was like, that's not good. And then they just kept using their Fitbits, and eventually (laughs) you just kind of get used to it. So you could see unexpected inferences being able to be made with your location data, your friending data, all sorts of stuff. That's like the magic of big data. 
for which we might regret what inferences are made, uh, uh, not because of the slingshot. And that's a, that's a more subtle kind of panopticon that I don't think we've figured out yet and maybe is an example, again, of getting us all to a place we'd rather not be, but we don't see the clear path to get there, so we don't take much action to avert it. Can I, I, the, the question that I'm struck by so far in our discussion, it's almost solipsistic in the way there's this data universe which we as individuals or each of us inhabits and which we project into the world. The problem for me really is the other side of this in which the fact is that yourself becomes more and more essentially invisible, anonymous, and you become essentially a functioning zero-one in the world. You become a commodity that's bought and sold. I mean, that's what the big problem is with, with current federal laws that uh, supposedly protecting kids, let alone adults, in terms of their digital sort of selfhood. It doesn't exist. And the issue really becomes for all the you know, political, social, technological wishes we may have, there's a kind of a... a f- the real world doesn't work that way. I mean, I think the, the problem that I see is that our lives uh, are absorbed into this large mass of bought and sold, to get back to your beginning point, and that we become commodities in this, and particularly, and I, again, our, my point of reference because of the topic and what we're speaking about tomorrow about sex, sexting and kids and sex, uh, the focus is really about how they don't understand this, and it's that they don't understand, and perhaps most people don't, in terms of how we use the media. We don't understand the social nature of its being in the market and being part of a system which essentially is being used to, to essentially rob us of our selfhood, of our quote-unquote secrets, which is, which is really what privacy is about at the end of the day. Because where the, the rubber hits the road for many, particularly politicians who get caught with their pants down, is their secrets become public. And that the, all of a sudden, what they thought was a private exchange between themselves and that, that other, who, whoever that person was, was all of a sudden shared by everyone. And these guys, are, you know, I, I come from New York, and we have a guy who's trying to resuscitate his campaign to come back and run for mayor now, who was thrown out of Congress, he left Congress because of his, his online daddles. Um, it's the sense that I th- I'm always fascinated with where you cross that line and where yourself becomes part of a social process in which you have no say in at all. And I, I, so that's... I'm just going to pose that as one more of the issues, which we'll probably never get to end discuss here today. But keep it going. Well, I wanted to ask. So, so I wanted to actually ask a, a sort of narrow, um, a narrower question, certainly than, we, than we've been than we've been talking about, and and it relates to this idea of secrets and the you know the situation that secrets. Um, so we, we talk about politicians having secrets, and we talk about you know often there's this sort of negative idea that that. Uh, um, uh, that information is being is, m- might be being kept from others for uh, potentially nefarious purposes, um, but there's also a lot of cases in which you know people just don't want things about their their personal life which they might be judged on right. negatively, you know, to be known in say a professional context. It's nobody else's business. Yeah, um, and so I think <clears throat> the thing I wanted to ask is you know given if, if we t- can take a more sophisticated uh, perspective on the way um, information is being shared by people and the way that um, Notions of privacy and sharing, are, you know, might be changing. 
what does that mean for journalists or uh, documentary filmmakers or um, employers who are hiring people or um, people at colleges and universities who are looking at applicants? Like, yeah. what, you know, what is the, what are the implications on, you know, what's um, uh, what's suitable to consider? Yeah. I think, but I think the starting point always seems to be so then people shouldn't share because people are bound to. Whereas we could be looking at it the other way around and saying. People shouldn't look. People shouldn't listen. That there are things that are nobody's business. Oh yeah. I don't no, know what the hell you do about that, Yeah, I'm specifically asking not about how you know not you know therefore go change your behavior. Yeah. You people mm -hmm. who are giving this information away online. I'm saying no from the from the standpoint of people who have to consider this information and maybe would like to you know be able to maintain certain secrets and evaluate things based on relevant you know professional aspects or relevant you know public aspects of a person's life. How, how, if we take a more sophisticated view of what this, this oversharing so phenomenon George is. So George W. Bush has taken up painting, it yes. seems. <laughs> he painted himself in a bathtub. Yeah. He literally painted himself into a corner. Yeah. He shared that on AOL. His AOL account got hacked. And then it was like everybody's an art critic all of a sudden of like, what does it mean that George Bush is painting himself in a bathtub. And I, I guess my reaction was, like, I know he's supposed to think that everything he does should be on the front page of the New York Times, but that doesn't belong on the front page of the New York <laughs> Times. And I, I don't, I'm not even sure it should be snarkily shared on Facebook. Now, maybe once you're the one in 300 million people who is or has been the president of the United States, like, anything's game, like, you're just not a person anymore. I don't know. But... I think it diminishes all of us to treat all data as data. And I was surprised in the coverage at how little even any mention was made of the way in which we all got our mitts on that. They're just like, this was just released. It was like a Friday news dump by an anonymous hacker of what Bush has been painting. And I think what it augurs for us is... Um, back on why it might be good to be able to maintain secrets, one reason to maintain them is because there will be disapprobation, but the disapprobation is ultimately misguided or not respective of uh, respecting diversity, but people will be affected if they can't keep their secrets shared because it's a tough world out there. That might say another thing is to make the world just more tolerant. Um, another thing is, if the thing shared happens to be what even the sharer says is a mistake or a wrong. And I don't know if Anthony Weiner's a good example because he's just incredibly unsympathetic for know, tweeting please. what he did. Um, but that to anybody with whom it is newly shared, it is a new outrage repeated for each new person, whereas to the person who did it, like at some point they did it and they shouldn't have done it, um, Dan Solove makes this point in his book uh, where he talks about dog poop girl, the girl in Korea who, um, whose dog pooped on the floor of a subway car, and she very pointedly just didn't clean it up. She's like, nope, I will not be cleaning up this crap that my dog just put on the floor. Somebody got a picture of her and the dog and like before and after pictures, like it's a whole smoking gun. And there was like a vigilante crew, a kind of Reddit in South Korea that just like solved the mystery, found out who she was, got her fired, made her very unhappy. The dog is in therapy. And, um, but she still never cleaned it up. She never. It was too late. At some point, there's nothing to clean. And that's an example then of not just tolerance for difference, 
but actually being able to understand that you're not the only person looking at this and immediately wanting to send a Facebook remonstration to the perpetrator to add to the outrage, but that there's a community of people that already did it and people are flawed and we shouldn't expect them not to be. And I don't know, that's going to be Anthony Weiner's yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. rallying cry as he runs for mayor. Well, on the level of procedures and policies, I mean, are there things that, uh, not, not to talk about what you know, legally might be enforced, but just in terms of you know, ethical behavior for uh, a company that's hiring uh, someone and has the opportunity to seek information that is available yeah. on the internet. Well, you turn all the dials to a company that's hiring somebody who's going to work on supervising a daycare center, and then it will be Fox 25 News at 10, like, wait, you didn't just go onto their Facebook public page and see that one of their likes was abusing children? Like, hello. Now it's suddenly you're negligent not for looking. Mm-hmm. And again, I think the water's going to find its mark there, that it's going to be mm-hmm. a form of vetting, probably AI-enabled, that uh, maybe we could try to carve out spaces that say, no, Facebook is just for fun. But, but I think there yeah. have been limits set on that, particularly trying to do DNA sampling of a potential, looking for genetic diseases vis-a-vis mm-hmm. a, or potentially harmful diseases in a person that would impact their insurance if you're working for in a company which provides insurance, which is less and less in America. But so in some courts, again, this is not my specialty, but I understand that there are some, that certain parameters have been set, one of them being biological sort of intervention, if you will. So the question could be that as a citizenry, we really need to establish other parameters. And unfortunately, the debates that are going on in Congress about privacy uh, is really being controlled by special interest groups, that is Facebook and Google in particular, who have really mm. pulled back in terms of both protections of children but also protection of you and me because they don't want any protections to exist in terms of your digital records in any form. And so that's, that's another extreme. I mean, uh, anything, I mean, I'm sure there's some like your IRS reports, maybe even not even that, I don't know. But I think that there's, and I think as a society, we need to come together and think about where we want to draw these lines, both for ourselves as adults and also for our children. So, so where, where do you think, um, there's obviously a lot of places where these, where the water is finding its mark and where these uh, uh, boundaries are being tested in, in various experiments and ways. Um, are there places where, um, there are broad public conversations about these issues that are taking place. Um, it's the broadest uh, one I've are... seen is in this room. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'd hazard that this is the right group to be thinking about it. The kind of people who are presenting papers um, at this symposium and are listening to them is the right group to be doing it. It will mean probably trying to swayze the likes of Facebook and Google and Mm -hmm. uh, some of the other de facto big data collectors about what they should be doing. Whether it fits in with their business model or not, I don't know, because I don't even know if they're sure what their business model is. Um, It'd be nice to get them on board before they know, because once they do, (laughs) if what you do is against it, like they might even owe their shareholders a duty to ignore you. Um, right. So this is the kind of group that should be thinking. But there are, con- you know, there are efforts underway in the Congress. Uh, last year, they're, they're just talking about conferences. There's a really interesting conference called the Personal Democracy Conference um, in New York that had uh, an interesting di- dialogue 
between Ron Weidman from Oregon and Ron Paul, no, Rand Paul, the junior, uh, from Kentucky, really trying to figure out this very question about mm -hmm. where do people's privacy, they're both coming at it, one from a quasi-progressive, the other from a libertarian perspective, trying to find a common ground to be able to formulate, and they didn't go anywhere, but it was an interesting discussion. That's an important thing, <laughs> and it's not a coincidence. No. Uh, and this isn't to just give up on the regulatory process, but there is a little bit of be careful what you ask for when you get those gears in motion. It'll all right. just amount to a tax cut. Right. Um, and often the word of the day is self-regulation. Um, and. I think, for example, the U.S. Federal Trade Commission has done some really good work in the past few years, but they tend to only push on very widespread, well-defined, well-understood problems. Basically, the iceberg has already been scraping against the ship for quite a while. I mean, many of you are now experiencing that at last the European Commission has done something about cookies. I don't know if you've noticed you like visit yeah. the um, independent or uh, some overseas uh, in Europe site, right. and now you get a banner that says, cookies are in use. Like, please, I don't, avert your eyes, <laughs> cookies are in use. Click here to make this banner go away, which in turn will be your acknowledgement that cookies are in use. And that does strike me as sort of a great example of, yeah. wow, that was a long well, decade to get to that. Right, exactly. Yeah. We might have, they might be labeled Belgian cookies, French cookies. Yes, right. exactly. Click here so, for money-saving coupons <laughs> targeted to your interests. So uh, speaking of public conversations, I'd like to invite uh, you speaking in the audience to come to the microphones um, and <coughs> ask some questions and have some discussion with our panelists. We'll start with Chris since he's here. Hi. Uh, thank you. This has been really great. Um, Jonathan, you mentioned that we might develop technologies that help signal our desire to not be recorded or preserved in a digital form. I was wondering, could we also, in some future where this is possible, um, flip the default and say that the baseline is we have to be wearing some sort of technology or signal through some sort of technology that we want to be recorded or we want to be preserved in the same way that right now, uh, in certain jurisdictions, you have to consent to having your phone conversation be recorded? And if the intuitive answer is no, because that would kill Google Glass, or it would um, just you know, not be accepted, what are the reasons, what are the interests, what are the incentives that keep that from being accepted or keep that from being a tenable, yeah. intuitive conclusion? I think it's a good idea to put on the table. My guess is Partly, individuals, if they're recording, will want to be recording and not have the inconvenience of those who, somebody who just hasn't opted in. It's kind of like, can you all please turn off your cell phones? Remember when people received calls? Like at that time, cell phones kept going off. Now we don't get calls anymore, so it's not a problem. But um, <laughs> at that time, that was an example of you had to affirmatively say, I'm in a zone where I don't want. And the default, even though Everybody, including the person whose phone goes off, is completely mortified when it happens. They never remember to quite opt out. So part of the idea of setting the default really is to anticipate what will an individual and what will the group want. I would just try to think about it even more capaciously. Could we think of zones, physical spaces, where whoever 
runs the space or has rented the room or owns the room sets the default for the space and the meta default is you will respect the default of the space unless you choose to override it so the movie theater would turn off your phone when you walk in and you have to remember to turn it on if you want to be that guy in the movie and that to me could be really good because again it gets back to well, what are we really trying to protect with privacy it might be that at the child care center you want the default in the room to be one thing in an auditorium, it's a public auditorium, uh, you probably want the default to be yet, yet something else. If we could come up with things that are not as complicated as Facebook's ever-evolving drop-down menu, like just had lunch. Well, who should know that you just had lunch? I'm going to start, <laughs> what are my circles, to mix my metaphors? Um, my guess is we could come up with some pretty elegant things, and a lot of the sharing that is really high bandwidth and could be put to unexpected uses that I'm thinking about, <clears throat> location, audio, video, that really rich telemetry, it does mean, too, that we are all experiencing each other in high bandwidth, and the way that uh, when you have your phone's uh, sound turn on, you take a photo, it makes an old-fashioned shutter sound. There are ways, I think, to import that so that we can come away a lot of the time with the configuration we want. And one other quick default would be to preserve stuff but reap it on a regular basis. And the Europeans, one of the few differences, real differences, I think, between European and American um, privacy-oriented law is that the Europeans say, once data collected has been used for the purpose it was collected, you are under affirmative obligation to purge it. They can always set your use to be anything I want, and now we're done. But... I can see a default that says a lot of the raw telemetry we might be gathering will basically degrade, and over the course of the week it'll fade out unless I seek to keep it. That's the kind of default that might be very helpful for these purposes. And just introduce yourself, Alberto. I'm Alberto, and I'm a PhD candidate in Stockholm, Sweden. And anyway, I was trying to listen to your um, conversation. Uh, in regards to my own research. And then I was wondering, uh, first of all, it struck me that already 200 years ago, Thoreau uh, was really critical about having a telegraph across the Atlantic. And he said that uh, all we're going to hear across the Atlantic is the Queen uh, Elizabeth has a flu. So this kind of <laughs> prediction, how silly. The Which at the time could have moved markets. <laughs> <laughs> And anyhow, and then I sort of picked up a little bit of keywords when Nick and Fiona were discussing, and one was uh, meaningful content, I think, and the other one was uh, that you mentioned very briefly on experiments. And then I was wondering whether meaningful content and experiments was more of a, um, uh, something that... Uh, uh, was more likely to occur in a pre-social media area where users were able to craft their own frameworks. And then I was wondering how the framework that Facebooks and all these social media sites uh, kind of affect uh. this kind of experiments that comes uh. from maybe uh, below, like user that takes initiatives to frame a particular content and uh, communicated in a maybe less uh, communicative uh, and gossip-like manner, but rather uh, in a, you know, exploring more qualitative way of communicating certain content. And uh, yeah, so I was thinking, in fact, about 
how this framework, for instance, the Facebook framework and so forth, are sort of shaping also the sharing. And, um, and then it also struck me that uh, the experiments that were uh, typical of uh, the web 1.0, one, one, um, 1 whatever, uh, area were also kind of, they also kind of stopped uh, with uh, the rise of social media in a way. I mean, it's quite striking to see how like all these wearable computers, things and talks, upstairs they're just you know forgotten and the, the wearables are just in a dusty closet and nobody sort of look um, at the more genuine way of exploring the potential of digital media and so forth so just a few comments and and a bit of questions Well, yeah, I mean, I'm interested to know if this, if this idea of seemingly, you know, seemingly irrelevant uh, uh, content or, you know, uh, communications that don't have a tremendous semantic payload, you know, uh, it doesn't seem to me at all that uh, that was invented with Facebook. Uh, I'm thinking back to, you know, days of, uh, uh, you know, Usenet news groups like Alt Barney, Die, 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 and uh, Alt Pave the Earth, Alt Chrome the Moon. Right, very. I'm a uh, Carl Malden nose fan myself. Yes, <laughs> I mean, there's, a, there's. It seems like uh, very soon after. Um, I mean, even that there's, there's, uh, you know, joke RFCs, uh, uh, you know, request for comment documents uh, to formulate protocols for the internet. Right. So, I mean, as soon as you have um, uh, channels for communication, formal and and uh, digital means of of communicating, I think people want to use those for a variety of of uh, ways that, that aren't, you know, closely targeted on exchanging information. So I, I don't, I'm not sure that, um, um, I don't, the, the quality of that may have changed um, as the quality of a lot of online communication may have changed in recent years, but I wouldn't see it as something that has just come about thanks to Twitter and Facebook. Um, I don't know. I would agree. I think sometimes we are just grunting or waving or yeah. Well, what I think we're converging to is an acknowledgement that there's going to be unexpected results from stirring the very rich stew of the telemetry we're all offering up, including that which seems playful or banal. And it would be probably bad to simply be panicked about that. And I can't say I've heard any panic yet in the room on that, so good. Mm -hmm. um, but to be aware that sometimes what happens can really get out of control of the person who thought she was being autonomous and making choices about what to share. And that's a deep dilemma. I don't think there's any easy answer to that. It's also why I think the prominence of kids in the kind of setup of this session is warranted, which is that kids especially they need the ability to make mistakes and to be goofy and not to have it permanently alter their lives. And I don't know how to solve that. It might mean that environments and frameworks like Facebook need to be very aware of a divide between a kid and an adult and really create a different environment for a kid, including all sorts of different defaults about permanence and, and shareability and that kind of thing. Uh, which they, they haven't had. Uh, it's a perverse, actually, impact of COPPA, the, the privacy right. protection law for kids, that because you can't basically interact with kids 
uh, under 13 at all, that you just deny them access, at which point they change the drop-down to right. make themselves 101 right. years old. Right. And it's always funny to me when social science types like are just plotting graphs of age on Facebook and making all sorts of... It's like, yes, a lot of 101-year-olds are <laughs> just really skewing the data here. I don't get it. Um, the older you get, suddenly the younger you are. It's like Stratego, where the spy can kill the general. Um, but uh, all of that is to say... It would be interesting to have a moment on Facebook where it's like, today you are a man. <laughs> like, now let's review everything you've done and give you, like, here are your new extraction of the training wheels. Building your own book. Yeah, something like that. Um, but to be able to create safe environments for kids, safe to find not as heavily monitored, but as no need to heavily monitor because <coughs> it can't explode virally the way that somehow sometimes the Tinder does. The, the, thing I, I, the thing I worry about that, though, is that then it sort of puts the burden on youth to do all of the social experimentation for us and figure out about identity and self-representation. Oh, they happily take up that burden a lot of the time. They're going to be doing it. We might as well be. But, I mean, we're experimenting, too. Everybody's experimenting yeah. and just trying to figure out. To me, this is like the Wikipedia insight of what if someone vandalizes a page? Well, we better not allow edits from weird people. And it's like, well, there's no Wikipedia then. Um, so figuring out how to make it so that yeah. vandalism is not a problem, but just a, right. not a feature exactly, but just part of the landscape and we can undo it. Yeah, just a transient over uh, phenomenon. Can I, sorry, can oh, I just yeah. also say that, that I think, I mean, the solution isn't, doesn't always have to be technological because I think with the, the problems in relation to sexting, primarily that have, have happened, where things have, you know, images have been circulated. It's, it has been the fact that young people haven't been supported by their schools that has been the problem, rather than something needs to be done to, you know, to stop the image being circulated or to, you know, it, it's not a question of defaults there. It's a question of somebody, somebody needs some support here. After the fact. You know. After the fact, yeah, after yes, the fact. And, that, and that has not happened. Which is also about let's train them not to do yes. it, but it's, once they do do it, yes, figure they're, they're out how to do it, it not so then what? And it's, it's about the difference of responsibility between, you know, what a 13-year-old girl yes. do and what a, um, a hiring committee right. should yes. know and what Interestingly there, I think we actually agree in that when I'm leaning on technology here, what I'm really leaning on is system and systemic yeah, yeah. stuff. And you're mm -hmm. talking about systems too, and yeah. technology is reified technique into a system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, hi there. I'm Mika Reeser from Brandeis University. Um, so, just as we were going through there, I noticed that there were kind of several things that were touched on, but all kind of conflated together. And I kind of wanted to, you know, look at maybe separating them out um, in some way. We're talking. We first talk about sharing and oversharing at the same time, but really, what in, it's, in sort of it seems to me that sharing is simply, you know, in ter as we're talking about, is is a window into a world that perhaps you had not seen before. I mean, we talked about it; you know, we, it was extensively talked about in terms of youth here. But you know, as someone who has several new mothers on their Facebook friends list, I know far more about what's going in and out of their children than I really want to. You know, so oversharing in that case, you know, oversharing becomes not share. You know, the act of sharing, the act of opening up that window, whether that's you know youth activities, what's in your pocket, new motherhood, whatever. The overshare that that's simply the window. The oversharing is, I don't really want to have that view through that window. That over, you know, so that's the the classification of sharing versus oversharing is that. But then we kind of have also wrapped in the social reaction to that sharing. 
you know, it's more that it becomes more than just what I personally want to see. It's a societal reaction, but still, that that sharing happens independent of the social reaction some way. And then also, we were, you know, in the same conversation, we also brought in the involuntary share, sharing with, you know, Bush's paintings or sexting that gets distributed. And is that the same as oversharing? Because that's not someone choosing to to show that. That's something that was put perhaps even in a private space that was then pulled out. And is that, you know, that is is that the same issue as oversharing, or is that something that you know, shouldn't be considered the same as simply the issues of, you know, are different people comfortable with different levels of what they're of what they're spreading, and so that was just the thought of all these conflated together was like, you know, these are these are separate things that should be looked at differently. So. Yeah, I, yeah I think, I mean, I think we came like yeah, we came to the discussion of Bush's paintings via looking, you know, what sort of journalistic or other types of standards people might have for examination of material. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think that we're, we need to indicate that um, sort of leaking confidential information is the same thing as voluntary distribution, you know, or display of that information online. I think it's a good but, point. But you're raising what to uh, categorical distinctions, I think. That's what you're getting at, really. And the question is that as a, when one shares, I don't know, let's say what's in your pocket or the scores from a <laughs> baseball game or whatever with your friends that you're sending it out is not the same as the, what you're saying analytically is not the same as distributing en masse a picture of somebody with a private communication between themselves, putting aside George Bush for the moment, uh, and someone else. The fact that it becomes essentially viral, to use that that's the argument you're making, that there are two different orders of, 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 of digital communications. Yeah, and that, and that was kind of the, you know, the last point, is that there, are, there is the difference between, you know, I think it also comes back to sort of that midpoint I made about it's not, you know, oversharing in terms of your personal opinion as to do I want to see that is different from oversharing as <coughs> once society sees it and society makes those judgments. And, you know, that society will make those judgments about both what you've shared, you know, yourself. So I put something on my Twitter feed that is public that I'm like, you know, I felt okay sharing it, but society says, no, you know, this is, you know, this is kind of too much. This is whatever, you know. So that's, you know, that societal reaction is one thing. But then there's also, I, I was so I was just distinguishing that there's a societal reaction to involuntary sharing, and the societal reaction to, to voluntary sharing. Kind of, right. I think as you said, you know, there's not. Uh, you know, that sometimes that societal reaction goes beyond, you know, should Bush have, ha have had all this criticism of the stuff when he hadn't actually been the person who had shared it. But, you know, there's also the fact, you know, just stepping back from voluntary versus involuntary, there's just sharing versus societal reaction. Right. Yeah. yeah. University of Amsterdam. And uh, Jonathan, you told that you uh, heard uh, the word panic uh, surprisingly uh, little in this room, but uh, I believe the discussion is uh, pretty much permeated by this moral panic, uh, starting with the title oversharing and uh, continuing with this con uh, continuous uh, uh, focus on the problem, that there is a problem that needs to be solved. And I, I would like to play the devil's advocate here for a moment. and. Uh, uh, remind you that probably the mobile phone in your pocket is not the first technology of surveillance and if you look at the dollar bill on the back of it there is the great seal of the US 
with the eye of providence, right? This is right. supposed to make us feel better. So far. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, at least it didn't. Uh, well, it didn't work out uh, really. Uh, and my question is uh, really, you know, the uh, Great Seal is an 18th century uh, design. Uh, the Panopticon is from the 18th century. Or notions of privacy and public and private, the distinction between them are also from the same age. And uh, my question is whether we need to revisit those uh, roots from which we think there is a problem now, and whether these notions need to be revisited so the problem goes away simply if we, if we don't think in 18th century terms and distinctions. Yeah, I mean, just to jump in with a comment uh, on that, I would also point, I mean, we didn't really make a distinction very sharply between the idea of surveillance and data capture, but Phil Agre's article, Surveillance and Capture, you know, describes that sort of making a visual metaphor to, you know, overlooking and surveilling activity is not always uh, helpful in understanding all the ways that um, governments, corporations, you know, and other entities capture data about different activities and transactions. Um, and so I think this is one way of moving beyond the panoptic view and the surveillance view is to understand that there are things that are more tightly traditionally considered as surveillance uh, that are being undertaken. And I think that the visual recording of, of things is certainly in that category. But there's also uh, data capture activities that don't match up to that in the same way. And uh, we want to be sensitive to those two to, to understand some of the connections and distinctions. I guess I'm open to your point, Bodo, and it, it actually dovetails with um, our PhD friend uh, from Amsterdam, I think it was Amsterdam, uh, on a topic like this is certainly very broad, over sharing, discuss, um, and it would be helpful at some point, and maybe now's the time, to be taxonomizing it a little more carefully. Um, as I just try to pull in the opposite direction and just figure out if there's like an overall theme or, or instinct I'm feeling about it. I think, and I think it's emerging maybe from uh, the discussion, it's, it's a little bit about the system versus the individual. And with this volume of information coming about, however it's done, and with whatever motive or accident or deliberate by which it enters into the system, what happens next and what will be built from it the answer is all sorts of things, and I'm just curious whether it would end up patterning sort of to the advantage of the individual versus a larger system. And when we say the individual, people are different, particularly the angular individual. Like how much is this ultimately about a form of conformity or uh, difference? And if what you want in the spirit of differentiation and experiment is difference and for people who are naturally feeling different from others or acting different from others not to be uh, dissuaded from that by a change in technology or behavior across the board how do you create the space for that like that to me is the consistent mm. question throughout and at the moment the back of the dollar bill I think is still just a virtual eye rather than in fact <laughs> the back of the dollar bill is watching me I can't say the same about this which is weird no, it's true. Yeah, I, I would, uh, you know, I'm glad you posed the, wherever you disappeared to, but uh, I'm glad you posed the question in a kind of historical context of sort of modern, sort of bourgeois capitalist life, because in a sense, 
the, we share a, a notion of selfhood, of privacy, if you will, of what I call secrets, that essentially is tied to us as self-individuation of who we are in the world. I mean, it's not only you know our beliefs or our gender or our color, or, but it's how we live and all that stuff. And the question that, that always that strikes me, and you know, this is what, for me the focus of this conversation, the panel we're going to do tomorrow, is really about: Are we? Is that shrinking? Is this what you're calling this kind of utopian, if you will, as, aspirational as the people who don't fit in? Something that, and I unfortunately believe that's the case, that we're shrinking this thing. And again, the, tomorrow we'll talk about it in, in, for teenagers. And you can see this actually being implemented very forcefully in the schools in America through zero tolerance and other programs. Uh, and you actually do walk around with an eye when you're in a classroom because you get an ID card, which has a built-in RFID chip in it, which tracks everything you do. Um, so. The problem is, to me, is that, that and again, I, I, I'm sorry if I put it in this context, this, we're in a sort of social crisis in the United States having to do with the restructuring of the economy, right? We're watching it happen. I don't know if you saw it in the New York Times. Today was a long article, front page article. The suicide rates are going way up, like 50% higher for men, 35 and older, 60% for women, because Something's wrong, and it's the restructuring. And I, I am a pessimist about all this stuff, so I think of it as a form of discipline that's being imposed, particularly on the young, to control them and to essentially sort of manage their growth into the workforce. And that's why you're here, and that's why I'm here, because we've sort of made it to a certain point in the process. So the question becomes, and I, so that's why I think your point is great. I don't know how we maintain... Uh, the sense of the traditional bourgeois notion of, of selfhood, of autonomy, of the liberal spirit of self within this growing commodification what in ones and zero universe. I mean, I think that's the challenge that we're facing. And I, this is what I think this conference is really about in many ways. So. Very, very shortly, sorry, just uh, for me, the, you know, uh, I'm coming from Hungary, and every, every time around Gay Pride Day, the, the criticism against uh, Gay Pride is that I don't care what they're doing uh, at, uh, up until the point they're doing it privately. Yes, yes. And uh, for yes. me, the, the coming out movement within the gay community, or LGBT community, was about, you know, get used to it. It's, right, uh, yeah, it's right. And uh, for, I, you know, I'm not a big fan of Panopticon, but uh, the idea I uh, like even less is that keep your secrets so we can shame you and hate you uh, right. the moment yeah, right. they come out. Yeah. Right. And maybe you know, this is something that uh, can be uh, an advantage. Yeah. Good. I, yeah, and, and that, that's actually, I mean, the idea of, of oversharing over as a topic is not to highlight ideas of, for instance, moral panic or extreme examples where we would have legislative discussions and this would be brought out, but sort of the idea, oh, that's distasteful. You know, we, we don't like this a more subtle and insidious um, concept that people may have about uh, the way that they just... Uh, uh, you know, uh, display things about their personal lives. Um, so I think that's it's very much aligned with that. So, hey, uh, my name is Marcelo. I'm coming from PUC University in Brazil. And we're talking a lot about uh, so young people sharing and oversharing and sharing too much of their privacy. And my thought here is that maybe shouldn't we make a difference between privacy and intimacy? Because maybe those people are exposing some of their privacy, but they're not exposing their intimacy. Because they don't, some, usually they, they don't expose something that embarrasses them, especially because uh, the content published on social networks are extremely planned. 
almost building an online persona of who you are mm -hmm. on the, in that space, let's say. So, uh, final, concluding, aren't we sometimes judging them too much by our values, by our, by our values, and not acknowledging that privacy is a mutating concept rather than a uh, stuck concept, let's say? What are your thoughts on this? I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I would agree, and I think. But I, th I think, again, it's that um, the, the question needs turning around so that it's you know why the surveillance, why the constant prying into, you know, what people are, are sharing. That we we need to get the emphasis off the, you know, sort of don't, so don't say it, be quiet, you know, don't share things, and we and and to think more about systems, whether it's at the level of legislation or policy, hiring policies or just kind of, you know, trying to think more long-term in terms of like etiquette and manners, but that have to allow for diversity, that can't be like, this is how everyone must do this thing. But, you know, those, there are different kinds of systems that need, need to be built, I think. It does suggest, um, again, a lot of agreement among us like we're we're all kind of not wanting to focus on the question of the panel of like are people oversharing because none of us is really wanting to judge the people for what they're doing and especially with bandwidth and storage as plentiful as it is cheap. right as long as it's not like crowding crowding out something else is another thing like what is this channel doing on my cable it should be another action movie channel um but when there's as many channels as you want it just becomes well, don't tune in unless you paternalistically want to say this person who's sharing doesn't realize it's going to go this way, it's going to be used in certain ways. But there probably are people who think too much sharing is going on and it's not good for people. It's just, I don't, it doesn't sound like any of us happens to hold that view and it doesn't sound like you do either. Um, and I like your division between sharing and intimacy. Yeah. But how would you do... Maybe you have a thought. How would you actually delineate those technologically? I mean, how would you delineate private? Like uh, intimacy and privacy? Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, you, sh you should have, like, uh, I could explain that in a, maybe in a 15-page paper. But okay. So it's, uh, it's 10 to 2 right now. We'll, uh, we'll see it at the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Maybe intimacy. You should just publish it widely, though. For <laughs> maybe intimacy is something more like the word says, more intimate, really more close to yourself. And privacy is something maybe you just don't uh, shout out for everyone, but you could say if someone asks. Maybe I don't know. I'm just thinking here. Okay. Well, as you were saying, there's a difference between the personas we uh, are pressured to or just do create online versus what we really think. And my concern there, which is again a somewhat um, paternalistic slash maternalistic concern is people can forget who their real selves are when they spend so much time maintaining. Right. I mean, this is like the problem of celebrity that now everybody on Facebook and its siblings and its successors is going to have, at which point there is no there there, and it's the end of the candidate. Spoiler alert, that's how the candidate ended. Okay. Sorry. Thanks. Yeah. Brian Yonder from Stanford University. Um, David and Jonathan, you both mentioned the sharing of genetic data. 
Um, and in some practices, like the Personal Genome Project, um, where individuals share part or all of their genome, but their data is supposed to be, or their biography is supposed to be anonymized, uh, the informed consent form emphasizes the amount of risk. It should be anonymized, but who knows? Maybe some clever person will be able to link your identity with this data. And as of a couple months ago, we know it's actually now quite easy to do, and over half of the participants have had their biographies connected. Um, when you look at the first uh, early participants, a lot of their biographies were sort of high-risk personalities or people who are in high-risk fields. And I wonder when we talk about oversharing, especially with youth, we're shortchanging how much youth don't know the risks involved. And maybe part of the pleasure of sharing on these platforms isn't sharing despite the risk, but yes. maybe sharing oh, because of the risk. Absolutely. That's if we make it so it's not so transgressive, that, they'll just right, look for something maybe else. Maybe I will become an accidental yeah. exhibitionist. Right. Um, and just reforming like the risk and pleasure of maybe getting caught, maybe something right. that I think is private becoming public. Right. Yeah, that's kind of the Huck Finn approach to right. things. Right. And it sounds right to me. It's just what happens when... Um, it is permanent and broadcast wide. And maybe that's not something that we should all live under the, uh, somehow subjectively thinking about that threat all the time, or again, it makes us all into the press conference people. So I, I hear that problem. I also see on something like genetic sharing, more and more there will be such good salutary uses for science, for the advancement of curing disease, for example, um, to having a really big database of people's genome as much as we can snip out of it and then just send them a survey like, do you like chocolate cake? And now we can do what otherwise would have taken decades of research and not be worth funding. It, like In 20 minutes we yep. can get a decent sense of what's the like chocolate cake gene if there is one. Um, there's lots of great things that could come of it but it may be harder and harder as the data matrix is bigger to think that you can anonymize it just by lopping the name off the top. That's Latanya Sweeney's stuff. Right. And interestingly, too, the more you make people aware of the risks and how you will safeguard against them, this is, I think, Alessandro Acquisti's work, the more they uh, actually don't share. It's when they're in an environment that doesn't tell them about risks and doesn't have a good privacy policy that then they, they share more. Uh, um, one of the issues that we haven't talked about, which your question, not on the genetics part, I, I was really raising that only to sort of establish some parameters of what's acceptably private, forgetting about it's being, you know, raided. Uh, but it's, we, when one does that, when ostensibly believes it's private, you can't use it for, for uh, a job search or insurance and stuff like that. But your question posed another question for me, which was, uh, Anonymous has, the group Anonymous has done some interesting interventions. Uh, most recently, I think it was a case in Pennsylvania where they outed these two, Ohio, I can't remember, Ohio, where they outed these two football players who had raped this young girl. And so that was a private video taken of a private party with, you know, and then because no one could care about it and they were pushing it under the rug, they made it public with all kinds of consequences. You know, we, I don't know if you know that story. The guys went on trial, blah, blah, blah. So the question becomes, at what point does breaking privacy serve a social good? I mean, that's reversing our whole conversation. I, I'm just curious if you're still there, if you, your thoughts. I, mean, I, would, I would just add to that sort of 
of uh, the the paradox of with these genetic studies in particular, you're told the more personal data you share, the more actual value your genome will have. Because mm-hmm. your genome doesn't say much unless they know, They're are you a smoker? What sort of sure. lifestyle have you had? And there is this pressure there where uh, the more personal information I give, the more this may actually help biomedical mm-hmm. practices. Um, so this mixture of altruism and risk is sort of, I mean, at the heart of you know, these sorts of sharings. Yeah. Um, Matthias Herz, University of Passau. I guess I have to, well, take the job of the boring German guy who's uh, contributing oh. to the discussion right now. Um, <laughs> Didn't realize it was an open posting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, I hope so. Um, well, about the Wall uh, Street, you got me. You're absolutely right about that. But uh, perhaps I have to add to that the Germans are kind of mentally damaged when it comes to talking about surveillance and something like that. We have some history that isn't quite without problems. First when of all, the panel, never mention the war. Institutions yeah. know too much about oh, yourself. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, I have to say, first of all, I agree absolutely in two points um, that you were discussing. First, when it comes um, to, to the thing that we have to figure out um, how to deal with new challenges when it comes to information society, uh, with a society of disclosure, which we are going to have. So I absolutely agree on that. And I also absolutely agree uh, when it comes to saying you can't tell kids not to share. It will work out. So I've been a kid some time ago, and I wouldn't have listened to that either. Um, but when it comes to that point, I guess it might be interesting to tell kids what's the value of sharing. Um, share for some purpose. Is it? You, you have the possibility to communicate, of course. Um, you get some off somewhere, uh, something, um, well, more cheap for that. Um, just that we don't get into something which is called, well, let's say, brief new information world, where nobody else cares anymore. So absolutely agree um, with Mr. Rosen when you say often kids don't actually know what they do. Um, and this is kind of opposing what one of the U.S. prophets, I would say, he's even got a very impressive beard, um, is, is saying right now when he talks to German media, uh, he's calling up a leader. I think most of you in the audience know this guy. And uh, he's saying he's absolutely sure that all of the kids are absolutely sure what they do and what happens with their data. Because actually they don't know. I'm focused, uh, I'm working in a research training group focused on privacy, but it's a researcher that they don't know. And um, when it comes to that, we're big fans when it comes to talking about media literacy. Tell the kids what is happening with your data get the trade off, share, have fun with that, but this can create a future when it comes to, okay, somebody's trying to claim about we want to have all the information together, that, but then would be a big brother, which we can yell against, so not some brave new information society uh, where nobody even cares anymore. So I'd just like to hear your thoughts about that um, when it comes to telling kids what to do about that, telling to, um, when it comes to telling them what to do with their data. Not to not share. So, about that, I'd like to hear your thoughts about that. Okay. <laughs> um, well, I, you know, again, I think, um, A, you know, it's like, uh, I don't know enough about Germany, but in the United States, uh, we have a driver's education courses for kids when they learn to drive a car. You, you have to go through it and get a test before you get your driver's license, you know? 
And in a, we have a very distorted notion uh, of, and especially in the last, over during the last period of the Bush administration, let's take something which is equally contentious in this country, uh, which is sex education. Because they're really, besides you know, data education, information education, we really strip bare sex education in the schools in this country for a decade. And we had what was called zero tolerance, no, no, we had um, abstinence-only programs. And so essentially, there was an effort to s sort of uh, stop people from asking certain kinds of questions and getting certain kinds of information because we didn't approve of, sec or the, the policymakers didn't approve of, of, of teenage sexuality. Um, and I think, for at least for me, I think I, I would completely agree that part of the that you posed, which is that part of is the self, the education about the limits about how to manage yourself in the digital world, is essential. But I think the point that I believe you raised earlier, um, regarding the issue of of taking risks. So I think the. I, I don't know how you balance that. I'm, you know, I, I'm not a teacher. I don't. I've never really worked in the classroom, and so I don't really know how that's done. Of setting the parameters in such a way that you educate so people know the limits, but you also let me put it this way: there's no Plan B, which is an anti-abortion, uh, anti-pregnancy pill for when you're pregnant. And I don't think there's a Plan B, if you will, for putting too much data out that you don't know how to capture and return to yourself after the fact. And maybe that would be an interesting policy suggestion. You know, setting limits to how long the data can be kept either by in the public or in a private corporation or government agency, especially for kids under 18, say, whatever the age. But there is no plan B. Just add something. We're big fans about um, the right to be forgotten when it, when it comes about data collection. Um, that's something that we're discussing, discussing with the lawyers in our research training group a lot, um, how, how this might just work out when it comes to, okay, they sell the data, it's a business, but as, how long do they need the data? Can we limit this? So it's an absolutely interesting approach to that, of course. I think you've totally failed in your effort to be boring. Um, you must be a new German. <laughs> <laughs> That's my job. Okay. Um, I credit your distinction between Huxley and Orwell, and that Orwell is what you fear is going to get you, and Huxley is what you love is going to get you. And when you say what you love is going to get you, it is hard for it not to end up being um, looking for a nanny, looking for somebody to tell you uh, how to save you from yourself. And that's a, it's actually interesting in the European framework, too, how much more trust there is in the state to help play that role than there is in America, especially in the circles that talk about technology in America. It's always keep the state out. I'll take my chances with Facebook. Like, well, good luck with that. Um, and uh, the sex education analogy is interesting, although for sex education, it's like, you know, you're just tromping into school, I guess, in like fifth grade or something. You're like, okay. Put away your books, children. We need to have a conversation. Well, They're like, here. this is different. Um, and then it's like, I'm glad we had this conversation. We shall never speak of it again. Yeah. But 
that's the way the anatomically correct. Yeah, that. so that's and, uh, to me yeah, where the metaphor may fail because. Oh, I wasn't thinking of it that quite that way. Good, good, good. Oh, please. Um, <laughs> the, uh, that's ongoing. Right, and that there's no reason not to be working in the tools that are too easily now linked. I remember when Facebook was only for people at schools. And then it was right, like, right. I wonder if strategically at they're college, going to expand to. Right, right. And now that it's everything, why not have as part of schools the creation of a very compelling space with room for the kids to make mistakes and own it and make it more like MySpace than Facebook and how much it can be tweaked and customized. Um, and that's where the kids will spend their mind share. And that becomes the universe where they make mistakes and make fun of each other and everything, rather than just one wing of a universe for which it's so easily piped out through interoperability to the rest of the world, i.e. something like uh, Facebook. And just, I mean, just to add, to bring it back to the example of sexting again, and, and don't, you know, don't share, the, you know, that, that world needs to include much more of a sense of, I guess not so much just media literacy, but a kind of ethical idea of what you know using technology. Because if you look at all of the uh, media literacy campaigns that are about educating young people or about sexting, they all put the emphasis on girls don't send your pictures, and if you do, something bad's going to happen to you. But of course, sexting is only a problem when somebody else shares the image that it should never have been shared. So, kind of you know shifting that educational frame. So that it's not about shaming girls, but it's about kind of ethical use of information would also be part of that, yeah, you know, that system for young people, yeah. I think. And, you know, it's, that's a kind of, it's not an easy problem to solve, but it's an easy distinction to make about what's wrong and what could be right, I think. Thank you, you have lots of thoughts about that, but perhaps um, <laughs> well, due to the time, we'll get to that, discuss later. I'll love that. So, thank you. Sorry. I tell you what, we are five minutes over, and I want to give the presenters in the coming up sessions time to get over to uh, E51 and people time to converse in the interval between uh, now and the 245 session. So I'd like to thank our panelists, uh, Fiona, David, and Jonathan. And, uh, thank you. And thanks to all of you.